Welcome to the Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 7-28-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we have. We come uh, with humility and uh, our diligence seeking you to come to know you better. We thank you for those who have joined us, and we pray for wisdom as we look into the scriptures that are before us. We thank you for life, health, and strength. And by the way, Father, we just want to say uh, for Lenora that we have learned tonight is uh, in the hospital. We're asking for prayer for her. We don't know all the details, but you do, Father, and we're praying for her tonight, asking that you would heal her if it is according to your will. And also we're praying for Dave and, and family as well. So all of this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 All right. So, you know, our normal course of study is Romans, and we're in chapter 9, and we're looking at the second half of verse 20. Romans 9.20 is where we are. We'll get there tonight, I'm sure. Um, but we'll do some, we'll, we'll take a moment for some Q&A if anyone has a question, a thought, a scripture, anything they would like to discuss. The floor is open. Um, I have a quick one. I think this one is quick. Uh, this is found in uh, Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 18. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it real quick. Sure, go right uh, on. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions with their unspiritual minds. So it's, you know, I know that scripture says a lot. It says false humility and unspiritual mind. Uh, but I'm particularly, my question is kind of directly, uh, what is the worship of angels when you're talking about the Colossians? Uh, is this something that goes back to some false teachings and it had to do with angel angelology or something or so it's a this that's basically my question i can see that it's false and there's unspiritual minds this is not somebody who's uh, transforming their mind or I, you know i don't even know if they're led by the spirit or are they saved i don't know so that's my question yeah uh, thanks for the question. That's a that's a good question. From what I know about uh, Colossians chapter two, there there are a lot of um, things here in the context that Paul is warning the Colossians about. So if you continue to read further, he talks about uh, they have lost connection with the head. Uh, from the whole body held together by its ligaments and sinews grows together as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ, the elemental spiritual forces 
of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Uh, these rules have to do with things that are destined to perish with use. In other words, temporary things. He's talking about Jewish things there, based on mere human commands and teachings. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom, but their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, yet they, but they lacked any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So part of, as you know, we talk about the church and what was uh, threatening the church at that time, it was Gnosticism. Gnosticism wasn't, hadn't really taken hold yet, but the forms or the beginnings of Gnosticism had take, began to spread throughout uh, the Christian church. Uh, John warns about it in 1 John, 2nd and 3rd John. Jude warns about it. Second Peter warns about it. So uh, Paul also does some work as well in uh, trying to dispel what was very uh, compelling at the time, uh, referring to the beginnings of Gnosticism. But here, this is also Jewish folklore. So um, if you look, there are a lot of stories and things that... Uh, that the Jews had, uh, a lot of people hold those things to be true. And I, I would say it's much like what's going on today. Uh, if you poll people and ask them what was going on or what's happening, uh, a lot of people are given to conspiracy theories. Uh, things that sound like it, it has their attention and they invest a lot into it, but really... They're just conspiracy theories and um, much to do about nothing. So what's happening is Paul in his, is giving us things that were threatening in his day. Things that people were being led astray uh, in. So now, when you ask a good question, what is, what is about the worship of angels? And the worship of angels is, just think about this for, for one second. Satan is an angel, and he desires worship. So it is not only uh, a current uh, false teaching, but Satan, is, as, as the angel that he was created, seeks to uh, garner the attention of all that are on the earth. He wants worship. And when we read Revelation, you can see his, his goals, his, uh, his intentions. So worship of angels is not a new thing. In fact, there, um, in, I believe it's in Corinthians, it talks about those who, um, there is like a communion table of evil. And what these people are worshiping when they're worshiping idols is they are worshiping demons. They're worshiping angels, which are fallen angels. So fallen angels are behind a lot of false worship, false doc doctrine. And what do we see in uh, Timothy? Uh, it says that there would be doctrines of demons or teachings that come from angels. 
that deceive many. So it, it is not a new thing to say worship of angels, but it was a common thing for the apostle, one that he felt it was necessary to warn people about. So worship of angels. Hey, Doug. Yes. Your voice was skipping out a couple of times there. I don't know if anybody else heard that or was it just me? Yes, right? so the way I heard the same thing is, uh, is uh, yeah, it is. We're resuming, and as we were discussing in Colossians, the scripture that has to do with the worship of angels, I think it is probably the oldest thing that has happened to this world. And it is probably the most current thing that Paul is discussing that is causing people to go astray. He mentions it here as well. So it, it is a part of um, what was happening in uh, the early church. I would say it's still going on now to this day. I'm going to pause to see if uh, what we have discussed does answer your question. Well, I think it, um, you know, being that Satan is an angel and he is a demon and uh, that's what he sought is worship. I think I, this is something that's, you know, this didn't occur in the Colossians time. This has been occurring throughout Earth's history. Yes. And uh, so, I, I, I didn't, I didn't think of that, but I think that that expands my mind so that I can certainly understand what this this text is talking about a whole lot better. So oh, thank you. okay. I'll just give you a reference. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. let me give him a reference. I'll stand by. It is First Corinthians ten. Uh, verses 19 through 21, if you'd like to read that. Uh, Bill, you, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I was also going to say that, like, when uh, when, when God's angels came down in the form of man and we tried to worship them, he told us not to. <laughs> he said, I'm just a fellow, uh, fellow brother. Yes. He wouldn't allow man to worship. Yeah. Absolutely. Angels are not to be worshipped. Good point. Um, they are servants. Now, of course, there are demons as well, uh, which we certainly do not want to worship. But however, in the verses I just gave, uh, unfortunately, that is what we find. Um, why don't I read that? Or Fred, can you read it, if you have it? It's uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 21. Coming right up. Okay, it says, um, do I mean that, uh, excuse me, do I mean that then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. Note to God. Uh, not to and God. And I do not want... Uh, not not no, to God. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Not to God. Offered to pagans. Offered to demons. Not to God. That's very clear and important. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table 
and the table of demons. Yeah. We are trying to erupt. Do you want me to continue? No, that's good. Are, that's are good. But to, you can read the verse 22. Mm -hmm. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Question. So, right. So I think, you know, the reason why I wanted you to read it, because I think it, there it does address that demons do play a huge role in a lot of things that are going on. Uh, especially as a result of what we were just saying, people trying to worship demons. And we would not want to. Now, before we go on, let me just make a, a, a comment regarding that. Um, how we can determine what truth is, is important. And what we have is the spirit of truth that helps us identify what truth is. Sanctify them by the truth. In other words, what we are to be set apart unto would be the truth. And what is truth? Your word is truth. So when it talks about this in John seventeen seventeen, we know that we are, the truth that we have is all the truth in terms of this new age information that God has revealed at this time and he has kept hidden from ages past and hidden God, as it says. So we know that the truth that is revealed is what God the Holy Spirit will illuminate to us. That which is outside of truth, we obviously cannot be sanctified by. That is not what we are set apart unto. That which is not found in the Word. Right? So we have to be careful, especially in the time in which we live, to stay in the boundaries of what the Word of God teaches. And how do we do that? Now, of course, everybody's going to say, oh, I believe the Bible, I believe the Bible. And they, they have a right to say that. However, when it comes down to it, are they following those limitations? Are they allowing the Spirit of Truth to illuminate the Word of Truth? So that would be a major difference and a lot of worship styles and tradition and emotion and all sorts of things that people have uh, deferred to over the Word of God. So we want to make sure that here, whatever we talk about, if we don't know, it's okay that we don't know. If it's not found in the Word or we don't know where it is in the Word, that's okay. We're, we're still discovering. We don't know it all. And the objective is to allow the spirit of truth to illum illuminate the word of God. And that is what we want to be set apart unto. So I'll pause. Other thoughts out there? Thank you. Okay. So it sounds like Romans is calling us. So you should have notes. Uh, and we are going to head over to Romans chapter 9. And we're going to look at our notes here. Let me get there. So we're at verse 920. We're in the second half. I'm just pulling up my notes as well. So, Romans 9 and 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In your notes, well, we are seeing the response of God to the objections of the church's calling. In some ways, I can understand why the Jews might have objections. At the same time, I can I clearly understand God's right in doing things according to his own way. On the ground, we see a very cold reception to the church from Israel. From God's perspective, the, church, the church's calling is, in fact, his eternal purpose. Are those objections legitimate? No, but God does take time to address their concerns. And, in addressing them, God is declaring his will. Will this thought and thorough explanation, with this thought and thorough explanation, why are so many still not seeing the church as God's magnum opus? And I, I have to say that even people who are saying that we're in the church age, they talk about, oh, this is the dispensation, we're in the church age, they still have a cold reception to who we are. Even though they may say those things, what they do is they lift up Israel as the ideal of conduct and behavior. And they use object lessons of Israel to make it, you know, that this is the goal. You know, we're going to be like Moses. We're going to be like David or Daniel. And it's not, I'm not saying there's something wrong with them. I'm saying that we are, have a different calling than they do. God has done something so large, so magnanimous that, and yet, and many people are just seeing it and saying, okay, sure, God, but let's look back at Israel some more. No, we should be looking at the church. The church is what God's eternal purpose is. This is where we are. So anyway, we've been going through Romans chapter Nine, and we've come to uh, where God has declared his sovereignty. He does not have to do that because he is sovereign. He doesn't have to demonstrate anything to anybody. He's God. He's our creator. He made us. I like what the psalm says. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. God is the creator He's eternal, and yet we don't give him the respect and sovereign uh, nature of personhood that he deserves. Oftentimes we treat him as though he is just another uh, competing opinion out there. And it is God, he addresses us, he's cordial, he's... But when it comes down right down to it, he lets us know when we have crossed the line. And here, Israel crossed the line. Now, what is God going to do? Smite them? No, that's not what he's going to do. He gives a thorough explanation of what his eternal purpose is. Israel rejects it out of hand because they want to continue the tradition that they have held for over 1,500 years. So, 
Can God change? As I said, can he shift his dispensational gears if he feels like it? The answer is yes, he can. And how does he do that? How does God shift gears? He does that through signs, wonders, and miracles. Well, he has certainly done that with the person of Christ, establishing that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he is the object of our salvation, only hope, only name given under, uh, under heaven to men whereby we must be saved. There is no other name the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Christ established the church. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. And what we have been reading about is the introduction to the disciples about what was going to happen and how he would establish these new revelations that were to come at Pentecost. All of that Christ laid out to the disciples, not, he's, but not all of it. It's just an introduction. Because he said, I've got much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. And yet, the disciples got to, they finally got to Pentecost after the roller coaster of emotions that they went through the death, the burial, uh, the resurrection, ascension, session, all of that. They got to Pentecost and they became the foundation of, of the church. So we, what we have is Israel's reticence to trust in God's eternal purpose, even though it was accompanied by signs, wonders, and various miracles uh, that were done through the power of God. So nothing, we can't do those things that God did. We can't duplicate that. Satan can't do it. Angels can't do it. Only God can establish what he wanted to do through his word. And he did. Of all the things that we can say, we believe in a miraculous God. We don't believe in, you know, where science says, oh, nothing can happen outside of what we think. Uh, science is not God. God is God. God is the one who created science. Science does not create God. And God does not operate within the boundaries of science if he doesn't want to. He can disrupt the order of things if he wants to, and he can show that he is on the scene. That's what he did. Israel refused to accept that. So that's why we're talking about this in Romans chapter 9. So, in our notes... We, we are dealing with this whole thing, but, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? So I'm just going to briefly give where we left off. God is sovereign, volitionally speaking, uh, and we have limited volition. We will never supersede that fact. I gave Job as a reference, Job 38, 1 through 13, where God said, Job... Where were you when all of these things happened? Of course, Job wasn't even born. Job wasn't even, I mean, there was no way that Job could have been anywhere when the earth was established, when God restored the earth and and put Adam and Eve in the garden. Job wasn't anywhere in sight. There were so many things that happened that Job had no knowledge of. God had to straighten Job out, kind of put Job in his place. This scripture reminds me 
of what happened at that point in time. We, Job's friends came, gave their explanation as to why those calamities happened to Job. And then the fourth one came, a younger man, gave his explanation of what he thought. And then Job came back and said, hey, let me tell you, none of that is true. Here's what I think. So God says, hey, let me tell you, this is what the deal is. I'm sovereign. I can do what I want to do. And you cannot stay my hand from doing what my eternal purpose is. So, who are you, oh man? Here, the, uh, God is primarily speaking to Israel, as we, we discussed. Because, why, why would we say that? Because that's the context. They were not respecting their place in the plan. God's sovereign decisions made to accomplish his eternal purposes. God can do what he wants. If you don't respect it, then God, you, you are raising your fist to God. Saying, God, I'm, I can do what I want. You, you don't, in fact, I can tell you what to do. So, uh, we, we went through a lot of points here. We cannot repeat it all. But we're going to skip down to where we are. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? And the second phrase in point number two is, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Uh, is that So now we have an analogy before us. This is the first point. There is an analogy. And the purpose is to help us understand the points made in the context. We are not free to assign any context we want. Now, this is uh, clear to me, but is not clear to a lot of people. When they read these verses, they think automatically God is talking about salvation. Well, we haven't seen salvation in the context. In fact, somebody could help me. Where is salvation in the context? It is not there. So... When you assign everything to salvation, it's because perhaps you can't see past salvation. So everything then revolves around salvation. But what, what do we have here? We have God revealing to us the deeper things of God, the meat of the word. And these things he has revealed to us by means of his spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 2.10. He has revealed these things by means of his spirit. And he is freely given to us. The information is not hidden anymore. It's out there. And it's the deep things of God. So now people will have to gravitate to, with humility, to understand these things from the spirit of truth. If you reject the whole spirit of truth uh, and the message he, he bears, you certainly will not come to the full knowledge of the truth. Because uh, the only way you can get to it is if the Spirit teaches you. If you allow the Spirit to teach you. So, that's the first thing. We are not free to assign any context we want. When he says he's going to give us this potter analogy, uh, and we are not to say, oh, well, this is what it means. What it means is what he's been telling us. 
this the, the analogy is only given for emphasis to help us fully understand. And what are we going to understand? We'll get to it. Um, we've been talking about it. It's the context. But point B, we're going to move into it. The Potter analogy initially says that the Potter has every right to make whatever he wants, and that's sovereignty. He could do whatever he wants. Now, just imagine if you were the Potter uh, in this analogy, and you took a lump of clay and you put it on the Potter's wheel. You could decide whatever you want to make. It's up to you. It's your choice. What's on your mind? Literally, God is using this analogy to tell Israel, don't tell me what to do. I'm the one. In fact, if you go back and look at it, it was me and my decisions, my sovereignty, that formed you, Israel. So don't get in the way while I'm continuing to uh, execute my eternal purpose in the world. Don't get in my way. And that's what God's saying. I have the right to do what I want. Now, why would God have to say that? It's because people, Israel, is trying to tell God that he does not have a right to look to the church now, to, to set Israel aside for a time that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Right? That's another way to say it in Romans 11, which we will get to. All of, this is another way to say that God set Israel aside, but now he is working with the church. He is calling out those many sons into glory. And Israel objects to this. So God has to say, wait a minute, don't question. First of all, I have the right to do what I want here. You are not in it. Who are you, oh man, to be able to talk back to God like this? I am the one who called you to be in the position you're in. You, you didn't have a choice. So this analogy, God has every right to do this, and he does. That's what you call sovereignty. To point C, let's move forward further. It says, it is ridiculous for what is molded to question the molder. Think about that. The question implies arrogance. Right? So, so uh, if you think about what is molded, what is molded doesn't have a say in what the, the molder wants to make. What is molded is what it is. It doesn't, can't talk. Imagine personifying what is molded to be able to talk and say, why did you make me like this? We'll get to that. That's the question. That's ridiculous. Paul is going to an extreme analogy for us to understand the sovereignty of God. What is molded? Say something? It will, will it question the molder? Not likely. It is literally arrogance. So point D, I have to laugh. The molder does not have a mouth to speak unless the molder creates and provides it. And that's the clay analogy. And literally, you could say, just like the psalm says, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you even pay attention to him? When it comes to who God is and what man is, we don't have a right 
to say to God, what is man? However, it does imply that there is free will. And the fact that what is molded can even have a mouth to speak and say, uh, why did you make me like this? Shows that God did choose to create creatures with free will. So we must also conclude from that that God has a right to manage that free will and to make it truly free. God did just that for Israel. He allows the questions, but he is letting us know that those questions are out of line. They're, those questions don't make sense when it comes to this. And when we see the what is man, and we look at God, we look at man, we realize that man really doesn't have a right. It's like when he braced Job. He said, Job, you, where were you when all of these things happened? When I laid the foundations of the earth, when I did this, and when I set the boundaries of the sea and the oceans and so forth. Where were you, Job? And Job couldn't answer those questions, of course, because he wasn't there. And what that is to say is, Job, you are not in the place of God. You are not in the place of sovereignty. And so it is with Israel. You don't get to tell God what his eternal purpose is. You can ask, you can challenge, but at the end of the day, God, he will execute his will. It is his choice and his prerogative to do so. So... God could, uh, he did give the, the, the clay, or what is molded, a mouth to speak. And the mouth does speak, and it speaks arrogance. And says, God, you could, you could, your plan is, is not valid because we are the chosen, and you can't choose um, the church. You just can't do it. Point E. We're moving through this. Why have you made me like this? So this speaks of Israel's objections. This is what this says, right? Why have it, so if the clay could speak and it does, it can speak, and uh, God is the one that made Israel Israel, and yet when confronted with the church, Israel has something to say. And when he says, "Why did you make me like this?" He's saying that you made me Israel. And remember, uh, we, we can't get the analogy to, to, to stand on uh, on all fours, as it, as it were. The analogy is just making the point about God's sovereignty. So we can't take the clay analogy to, to the nth degree and make every point about pottery and making clay stand, stand. That's not what the point of God drawing this analogy is all about. So... Why have you made me like this? This speaks of Israel's objection. That's what it speaks of. And I'm, I think it's six or five of them that we're going to put out here. So one, their objection to design a salvation by grace and not through uh, their attempts at keeping the law. So when I read, which is in the next chapter, we'll get to it. Romans 10, 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them 
that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So we can know this first one was a fallacy that Israel had, which is that salvation came through keeping the law. And it was wrong. Salvation was not by keeping the law. That It was impossible. The law can't provide salvation. Only God provides salvation and grace. So Israel objected to that. They just figured, hey, we're special. In fact, that leads us um, to point number two. Their objection uh, to they're not having any privilege when it comes to salvation over Gentiles. They just figured, hey, you want us to be in the same body as Gentiles, but let me tell you something. We are superior to the Gentile. We're the Jew. We're the, to, to us, the law was given. The law came. I mean, Israel has a heritage with God. In fact, this is what Paul said in the beginning. He acknowledges that. For I wish I could be accursed... This is uh, Romans nine three, cut off from the sake of uh, from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of of the Messiah who is God overall, forever praised. Amen. So when we read that, it almost reads like a doxology. But what Paul is saying is, I, I respect Israel. I, I, this is where I came from. I, I know all about Israel. And yet, Israel does not have privilege. If you go back to Romans chapter 2 and read a lot of what you see in chapter 2, it's, direct, it's directed especially especially to the Jew. But the conclusion of the matter, if you go all the way down to 3, he continues to talk about it. 3 verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Notice that question. In the Jewish mind, they thought they had advantage. And why, why shouldn't they? God is the one who called us to be Jews. God is the one who created the race of Jews through uh, his choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became Israel. All of this God did, but yet, when it comes to salvation, it does not have anything to do with it at all. According to Paul, what should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? When he says we, he's talking about we Jews. And the answer not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. The Jews did not think so. The Jews thought that they had a special in with God because of their racial heritage. But what they didn't realize that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even 
1. So those scriptures primarily are directed to Jews. Now, yes, Gentiles, if the shoe fits, and it does, you should wear it. Because those verses also apply if you have a Gentile background. But obviously, <laughs> for the Jew, for sure, because the last, from chapter 2 on, he'd been dealing, he's been, he's been right at the point about this whole message of privilege that the Jews thought, which is why they did not want to associate with Gentiles. They called Gentiles names. They, they, in fact, they did not even want to, to even go into the house of a Gentile, is what we saw in Acts chapter 10. Uh, the Jews were upset. You went into the house of a Gentile? Really? Tell us about that. How could you have done that? And so there was this whole separation between Jews and Gentiles. So, so the Jews hated the Gentiles, and as a result, the Gentiles hated the Jew and their arrogance. So Jews just thought they were better. That's point one. Point two, their objection to their not having privilege, uh, and this is what we just read, when it comes to salvation over Gentiles. So they thought that for sure. Point three, the fact that they rejected Jesus as the Christ and crucified him. Now this is John 1, 11 and 12. This is serious. Right? This John, I'm going to read it. Not that we haven't read this before, but we should know in this context. He came to that which was his own. And who did Christ come to? He came to, in the Jewish context, right? He's the Messiah to Israel. And yet, but his own did not receive him. They rejected their Messiah. I don't know if there's anything worse they could have done, but they re not only did they reject him, they didn't just say, we don't want you. They crucified him. They had him killed. And they, they knew it was just trumped up charges that they uh, put Christ on the cross and had him killed. They lied. All these things, they, just in order to get Christ crucified. But verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, in other words, not all rejected him, but when it came to the leadership of the Jews, they rejected Christ. Uh, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, that was all he was asking of them, he gave them the right to become children of God. And that is what we are, children. I like what it says in 1 John. Behold, what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And he says, and that is what we are. That's 1 John chapter 3. So anyway, here, so this is big. All these things weighed heavily on the Jews. They knew that they had rejected their Messiah. Uh, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, uh, and yet they had him crucified. And, you know, it, it's just a terrible thing that happened to the Jews, but it, it's the reality. They did, in fact, crucify their Messiah. And there was guilt about that. Point number four, their objection to God's eternal purpose. The fact that God has chosen Jews and Gentiles and they are in the same body without the Mosaic Law. And here's the big one. This is huge. There were, there were many Jews who did accept Christ. But you know what? They refused 
the church. They said, no, we, we're, we're saved because we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. However, we are not giving up the Mosaic law. That is not the way to go. In fact, that is what, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council was all about. And that was them coming together and they laid out what they wanted. They said, hey, we not only, we want people, if a Gentile is going to be in our body, we want them to be circumcised, first of all. Then, later, if you keep reading, it says that we want them to keep the whole Mosaic law. They just wanted them to convert to Judaism in the same way you did if you were in the Old Testament, right? If somebody wanted to convert to Judaism, those are the things that they would have to do. If they were going to be in the same body as Jews, and that those were the requirements. Of course, they were not looked upon as the same as those who were Jews. It's like Paul talking about, well, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm from the tribe of... And they were very proud of their heritage. So, converts to Judaism... Yeah, while they may have been converts to Judaism and they have gone through those rituals, especially the ritual of circumcision, but they were under the Mosaic Law. And they knew it. It was part of it. And yet, that was not something that God was requiring for those who were in the church. Jews and Gentiles are coming together. I love what the scripture says. In Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile doesn't mean that God didn't take from Jews and take from Gentiles to, uh, to be in Christ. It just means once they get in Christ, they're no longer Jews and they're no longer Gentiles. And the, the Jews could just could not understand. This. You mean you want us to be in the same body without the Mosaic Law? Without them accepting circumcision? as the right to uh, the covenant, as, as those who uh, were of the, co the covenants of promises that the, the Mosaic Law had. It was these were important things to the Jews, and they refused to accept what the church was all about, that God had shifted gears, and now uh, we are not under the law. In fact, they hated the Apostle Paul. For, for teaching that we are not under the Mosaic Law. In fact, they, they wanted to kill the Apostle Paul. It was, it was a terrible thing when you think about uh, the friction that the early church uh, had to go through because of this very point, because the Jews refused to accept the church. So it was a divide. And somehow the Gentiles... Try, you know, felt like the Jews really, if you really want to be close to God, then you got to mimic Judaism. You have, to, and you know, I think that same thing is happening today with people. They are holding Israel up as the standard of, you know, their relationship with God. If you want to be close to God, then you've got to keep the law. You've got to do this. And, tithing and all the things with Sabbath observance and people are lifting Israel up when really they should be lifting up the church.
God has set aside Israel. There is no doubt about it. We are not under the law. And we are in the same body. If you're a believer in Christ, then there is no Jew. There is no Gentile. All, those things are not things that God recognizes anymore. You may have been a Jew. You may have been a Gentile. But not anymore. Not in Christ. What are you then? You're a new creation. You are the body of Christ. You are identified with the person of Christ to the extent you are just as he is. You are one with him. And as Hebrews chapter 2 says, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. This is a unique position that we all have. So their objection was really their objection to God's eternal purpose. And this is the heart of what the apostle is saying, or God is saying through the apostle, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? In other words, why are you, uh, did you make me and then set me aside? That is the point. That's the Jews' objection. That is literally what has happened. Even back to chapter 8, when it says, For those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified, and so forth. Those, all of those, those things he mentions are things that happened to Israel. And Israel, well, except for the glorified part, right? unbelieving Israel, obviously, they're, if they're not believing, they're not going to be part of the saved. They have to be believing Israel. But then right after those scriptures, it says, who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who what will those who, you know, can, can anybody condemn those whom God has No. God is the one who chose us. And Jews, I don't care who they are, they cannot bring accusations against us. Right? This is God's sovereignty that we're talking about here. And they don't have a right. There's nobody. Who, who would, would Christ condemn us? Would the Father condemn us? No way. They're all for us. Through him we are more than conquerors. So that's Romans 8. So then what do we do? We're right here in Romans 9. And the Jews are objecting. And this is Paul's giving us, through what God has given him, the answer to their questions. And, and God has demonstrated it. Point number five. They object to God's set God setting aside Israel, and this is temporarily, because Israel still has a future. And it's you should know that God has planned Romans eleven, and He says, uh, I think I should read it. It's not in your notes, but I think it's appropriate to read it. Romans eleven. Here it is, um, twenty six, I believe. Here it is. Why don't we look at 25? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may be, you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. So Israel has a future. But guess what? Many people are ignorant of this mystery. They're ignorant of the Father's plan. And how do we help them understand that God has a plan to call the church? And then, just as it is written, a deliverer, the deliverer will come from Zion and will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Verse 27, and this is my covenant with them. Who's them? Israel. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. With them when I take away their sins. This is the new covenant information. This is the new covenant to Israel. When, when will they receive it? After the church age is over. Because right now, if a, if a Jew believes in Christ, what happens? He is not a Jew anymore. He is one with Christ. He's in the body of Christ. He's married to Christ. There's a lot of ways we can say it. So, Israel has a future. Well, what about now? Verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. Who's enemy? Who's an enemy? The Jews. They hate us. They're the ones that put Christ on the cross. And they persecuted all those who followed Christ. The disciples were persecuted, primarily instigated by the Jews. And he says, um, as far as the gospel is concerned, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on the account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And we talked about how God formed Israel and through the patriarchs. And notice, on the one hand, they're enemies right now because they're unbelieving. They don't believe in Christ. But does God have, have a plan for Israel? Yes. After the church age is over, God will fulfill that plan because he made promises and he's called the patriarchs. Israel has a purpose. And God will not dispose of them or dispense with Israel until his purpose is complete. They are set aside right now, temporarily, so God can call out those many sons into glory, for sure. Point F, this is our last point, to personify molded clay speaking, it says that man has free will. And we made that point earlier. And that free will can be used to defy God, although it is certainly not wise. God has anticipated and he knows. Right? It should be anticipated and has prepared for this. He anticipated it. He knows it. When I say he anticipated it, it means he, he already knew from eternity past that this was going to happen when he created creatures that have free will. He knows it. Every, when he decreed that all of these things would happen, it, it is something that God knows to be true. He planned it. He executed it. And he prepared for this. And when we, when we say this, that's the lake of fire. The lake of fire is not just for the devil and his angels. <laughs> it's just for 
every creature that has free will. If you want to use your free will against God, he has created, and he, listen, the lake of fire screams to us that man does have free will. God will not force you to believe in Christ. He will not force you to abide by his way. But he has also prepared a place for people who don't. That place is called the lake of fire. God paints the picture that it is not some place we want to go. It is certainly not to be desired, the lake of fire. So I would say that we would help, we would want to help God and to help people understand that he is sovereign. <clears throat> there is no such thing as a salvation that we design. We have to be respecting of who God is and understanding of his ways, just like if we see somebody we have to give them respect. We, may, we give them the right to think whatever they want, but doesn't mean we believe that it's true, but we give them the right to, to think about whatever it is they want to think and go their own way. God gives them that right too. But because of who he is, he's righteous. and He has standards. God has prepared the lake of fire. Lake of fire... Man will go there. It's not just for the devil and his angels. It's for man too. If you read the end of Revelation, you'll see that. So, this this is to say that man has free will. But don't use that free will in arrogance. Respect what God has done. Respect his eternal purpose. Because it is a part of God's, the heart of God that he intends to execute. And in fact, we're only here because of God's eternal purpose. When I say we, I mean all creation, not just the church age. God, remember, he hid this in, God, in himself, and now he's revealing it to all mankind. But every dispensation is a part of what God is executing his eternal purpose. Every, every single dispensation. When God created Adam and a woman, in God's mind, he already knew what he wanted to do. What was the result of creating that man and that woman and placing them in the garden with a tree in the middle? He knew all of this. He planned all of this. And he, the objective was to bring many sons into glory. For some, it's hard to wrap their minds around that. They rather have ritual and all these this pomp and circumstance. But God is telling us the most important thing to him is this. This is paramount. This is his magnum opus. This is the highest thing God has ever done in his mind. And I like what it says, and I'll have to close, and I'll close with Ephesians chapter 2. So here it says it in this way. Uh, Ephesians 2, and we'll look at verse 6 and 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages 
he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, th this is to say, this is the most important thing to God, period. And not only do we see that when God planned, he, he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, but we also see that in, in the future ages, God is still impressed with what he created in Christ. So we will close, but those are the thoughts to consider. Uh, as we see Israel rejecting, we see God giving us detailed explanation as to why and how it works, what he's doing. He's being as transparent as possible, and we have an opportunity to embrace not only the sovereignty of God, but how God is working out his eternal purposes in the world. So we're going to close, but we will continue with this context next week. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for what you have shown us in Romans chapter 9. You've given us a new respect for who you are and the things that you have called us to. We pray that we will respect who you are. We'll respect your will and your purposes and that we will not be against what your eternal purpose is, but for it. And that not only that, our entire calling, Father, is that we might come to the full knowledge of the truth, that these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that we will have the full, complete understanding of what you have called us to while we are here. We thank you for those who are here. We thank you for the fellowship that we have in this church. And we pray for those who are sick among us. Uh, and we already lifted up Lenora earlier, and we will continue to lift her up. And Father, I'm asking those who are on the call to continue to pray. All of this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.